Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the Radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, a push for more civics education in New Hampshire, Rhode Island state budget in limbo, and a dangerous new tick disease on the Cape. It's our regional roundtable. Later in the show, artist Neri Ward reflects on politics, immigration, and Caribbean culture through found objects in Sunsplashed, an exhibit of his work at the Institute of Contemporary Art, Boston. But first, joining me from New Hampshire Public Radio, Arnie Arneson, host of WNHN's The Attitude with Arnie Arneson. Welcome back, Arnie. Thanks. It's a pleasure. Joining me from Hippo Studios in Rhode Island, Philip Isle, freelance journalist based in Providence, Rhode Island. Hi, Philip. Hi, Callie. And joining me from Cape Cod, Paul Pronovo, editor of the Cape Cod Times. Hello again, Paul. Hello, Callie. And we're starting with you, Paul, because... You have a really grim story about this new tick disease, same tick, different disease. We tend to think of ticks related to Lyme, and this is a disease called Powassan. There have been two deaths. Please tell us what's going on. Yeah, uh, this is scary because it's a developing uh, disease uh, in in terms of people's understanding of it. Powassan is a tick-borne disease, and of course, as you mentioned, uh, most folks are well familiar with Lyme disease, and increasingly people are becoming familiar with another tick-related disease called babiosis. Both are pretty scary. Poacin is the scariest of them all because the symptoms can come on very quickly. There's no telltale rash as there is with, say, uh, Lyme disease. You, If you have a tick bite and, and you're contracting li- uh, Lyme, you typically have a bullseye rash, very distinct. Poacin does not show like that, so uh, you wouldn't know it. And then also, because it's so rare, it's not tested as, as a normal battery of, of tests when, when it's suspected you might have a tick-related illness. So uh, all of that adds up to something very scary. In the country, though, very small numbers of people who have had Poasin and, and have perished from Poasin, unfortunately, a very large percentage, and in this case, two people uh, here on Cape Cod were, uh, uh, have perished in the last year from the disease. So uh, so rare and, and so infrequent that the DPH hadn't had a record of it that we could get. But we spoke directly with some family members of one of the victims, and uh, it really was frightening how quickly this person went from a tick bite in November to December, having very serious motor control problems, and by just after New Year's had, had passed away. So uh, something folks uh, need to be aware of. And as always, what you need to do is be cognizant when you're on, on the Cape or anywhere where there's ticks. Do a tick check when you get out of there. And, uh, you know, the best thing you can do is get them off you right away. And if you are bitten, then uh, go to the doctor and get checked out. I think grimly that this new disease may put even more emphasis on Lyme, which before we knew about Powassan in these most recent times, was beginning to get a lot more attention, particularly in these parts down in the islands and the Cape, because we have 
lot of outdoor space and people were paying attention to it in ways they hadn't before and really understanding that sometimes you the symptoms as we understood them to be just as with this powassan are not necessarily ones you can see right away. I think that's true. And, uh, you know, they, they present themselves as things could be something else. I mean, uh, fever and chills oh, and, and, exactly. and body ache. I mean, geez, that feels like anything. And yet, uh, obviously, it could be something very serious. Lyme disease, when detected early, can be treated quickly. Uh, it's a pretty uh, robust treatment of antibiotics. But uh, if done, it can head off some pretty serious issues. If not treated quickly, uh, it can lead to some long-term lingering and painful effects uh, and neurological issues. So uh, I think you're right, Callie. Poacin, because it's so scary, perhaps will put even more light on tick-borne illnesses. And Paul, I think the most the line in your in your piece about the fact that the virus is shown to be transmitted within 15 minutes of a bite. That doesn't give you a long window to address this issue, number one. And number two, I guess I, I'm curious, does it always affect people this way? If you get bitten by this kind of a tick, you know, is the assumption is you will die, or do some people not even react to it? Because one of the concerns I have is it looks so normal, you know what I mean? There's no telltale signs, and you have a headache. You know, I have a headache too right now, but that doesn't mean that I was bitten by a tick. So my question is, one, have we actually tested enough for this kind of tick to even know whether the numbers are only 10, number one, because as you said, it's not the normal thing you do. And because it's transmitted so quickly, it's kind of frightening to think Mm. that, you know, it's such a rare event, or is it that we really haven't been aware of its existence, so therefore we haven't made that assumption? Mm. I agree. And uh, even though it's been around since uh, the 50s, I think you're absolutely right. I don't know that there have been enough documented cases and tests to truly prove out what we're dealing with. It's not always fatal. We we know that. Um, There have been folks who have uh, been treated and, and been okay. But you can very quickly develop serious uh, effects from it if not treated quickly. So uh, it's mm-hmm. it's important to catch right away. And, and, and again, as we're, we're saying here, there aren't a lot of outward signs. So really the key is, I think, for you to know that you've had a tick, you've been bitten, and uh, to go in and get tested. And uh, and hopefully it will become, uh, the testing for Poacin will become part of the general protocol. Mm-hmm. It isn't at this point, right. and hopefully exactly. it will, because obviously, even though rare, because it's so serious, you would think they'd want to be uh, including this among the tests. Well, thanks for letting us know about it. And so now we can we can be aware so we can work with our physicians um, to be on top of this. And also, I mean, I, I walk my dog in the woods every single day. And uh, the very first thing we do once we get out back onto pavement is uh, I, I check her all over and I check myself all over. I mean, that's that's really the key is, is prevention. Exactly. Let me move on to Rhode Island and you, Philip, because I uh, heard this morning that uh, Illinois had settled its budget issues, and they now had a budget. We also heard over the weekend very prominently the story about uh, New Jersey and Governor Chris Christie in the midst of a government shutdown in New Jersey because they didn't have a budget, but now they passed one that he was sitting on a beach that was closed to the public because they didn't have the funds to keep that beach open, ostensibly, but he was able to to use the beach in front of his uh, governor's house. So anyway, both locally across the country and also Mm. here in Massachusetts, we've sort of stayed out of the national limelight because we have some other funds working while these budget issues were getting resolved. Um, Here you are in Rhode Island, and it seems to come down to, in all of these situations, a disagreement between the leadership. And Rhode Island's no different, and it doesn't look like your situation is going to change anytime soon. 
That's right. Yeah, I mean, observers of the political scene here, the annual political season has its rhythms. And right around this time before the July uh, 4th holiday, you see what's usually a frenzy of often late night deal making and bill passing, which ends with the budget. And then the governor signs the budget. And that's kind of that happens for the year. Well, this year that didn't happen. On the Friday before July 4th, House Speaker Nicholas Mattiello, widely referred to and regarded as the most powerful politician in the state, announced abruptly and surprisingly that pretty much everybody was going home, that the session was done for the year. And this is while a number of key, uh, much-watched bills were in limbo and the budget had yet to have been passed. And since then, he and the Senate president, who depends on who you ask, Speaker Mattiello said they had a handshake deal on the bills that they were going to pass, the budget bills. Uh, Senate President uh, Ruggiero says there was no such handshake. The dust-up appears to be based off of a provision that the Senate wanted to add regarding a key campaign promise by the Speaker about winding down a apparently much criticized car tax program in the state. And the Senate apparently wanted to include a provision that if the state couldn't afford to wind down this tax, there would be an option to, to put a pause on that. That's how I understand it. And apparently that caused this big blow up between the two chambers. And since then, we appear to be at a standstill. The governor is not taking sides and says that government operations will keep going. I'm not exactly sure what happens when the state doesn't pass a budget, but that's the territory we're in now. And I guess we're going to find out. And as you mentioned, Kelly, I think if you zoom out a bit, what I find interesting is There was a striking sentence in the New York Times in a piece on July 3rd headlined, Caught in Budget Tugs of War, States Teeter on the Brink, that reads, Stalled negotiations have left at least eight states without budgets several days into a new fiscal year. Now, some of those may have been resolved since then, but there's something going on here on a local level in this country, I think. Uh, Maybe it's the kind of dysfunction of Washington trickling down. Maybe it's a breakdown of norms and civility. I don't know. But it seems that there's kind of something in the air here, and it's it's not a good thing. Well, Arnie, I'm looking at this piece by uh, Ted Nisi for WPRI, and and it's noting that so when you do this, you get a situation like a Chris Christie because people can't go to the beach. And I'm mentioning that because that was a big deal because he was on a beach while others couldn't be. But there were many other things that were shut down. In this piece by Ted, it says uh, would-be Community College of Rhode Island students are unsure whether they'll need to pay tuition for fall classes. I mean, these are real issues that I think when people hear budget, sometimes your eyes roll back in your head, and then you realize this is all everybody's life. Consequences. Yeah, yeah. Well, a budget document is a moral document. Let's let's understand this. And what is so frightening for me is that I think you're absolutely right. There has been a trickle-down of the idea that now consensus is a four-letter word. You know, we're not allowed to find this. That the idea is that, you know, it's... We all have a license to sort of honor our disagreements as opposed to do what we're being elected to do, which is to find what is good for our state, what is good for our communities. I'm devastated because isn't this between two Democrats? Uh, Am I right here? This isn't like a Republican and a Democrat. I mean, I understand this is Senate and the House and I understand the ego and I know it's Rhode Island. I get it. I get it. But at the same time, I'm just trying to figure out and you understand Maybe there was a handshake, yes, to the budget, but what nobody was sort of saying is, but that doesn't mean I can't slide in this little amendment. You know, I'm agreeing to all the dollar numbers. I'm just saying is, if the economy begins to tank and the revenues don't come in, does it still make sense for us to have this cut? 
And that's not a stupid idea. I mean, I hate to break it to you because it does have consequences. And you think they could find some consensus because the speaker could still save face. He's giving people what they want, obviously. But at the same time, if the economy turns out to sort of fall apart, then guess what? You can't keep a promise that ultimately does more harm than good. Well, they're both Democrats to confirm. And, That's what I thought. Uh, yes, I know. yes. And, uh, Paul, what we're seeing is, more often than not, despite where people may line up on the political ideological spectrum, the leadership disputes are what's at the center of many of these unable to move forward to get a vote going. That's true. And, and usually the, what that is a signal of is uh, priorities that cannot sync. So uh, House leadership and Senate leadership simply not on the same page as to what should be the top priorities of a budget. I don't know enough about the particulars of Rhode Island's dollars, but I can speak about Massachusetts. And uh, one of the delays, uh, which, of course, Massachusetts, not exactly in the same boat. It looks like they're resolved now. But one of the delays had been a $430 million uh, revenue shortfall. So mm-hmm. when you have that, mm-hmm. you've got to go back to the yeah. drawing board and exactly. decide, okay, well, we had our budget, but with revenues came well short of expectations. So now we have to rejigger things. And fortunately, in Massachusetts, we had Governor Baker visiting our office last week, and uh, we asked him about it. This is prior to the budget being worked out. And uh, he seemed very optimistic, and, and it, obviously it's proven to be with good reason that they would they would hammer it out. And that's a sign that, in fact, the governor and the legislative branches uh, were on the same page. Doesn't seem to be the case in Rhode Island. In fact, it seems pretty darn far away. Yeah. Just quickly, we may have even spoken about it previously on this show, but R- Rhode Island earlier in the year, there was news about a projected $100 million shortfall. Right. And I think what happens in a household or with a person when money is tight is things get tense. And I think that's happening at the state level here, among many other things. Well, let me just say something. We just passed a kindergarten bill with Kino as the funding source. Don't you love it? And there's yeah. a, f- a fail-safe. If the Kino numbers don't produce the requisite dollars that we're going to need to commit to kindergarten, well, then you're not going to get the money. There I mean, you go. it's like... Don't so worry. Again, it's not uncommon. Don't That's worry. That's why it's so called gambling, have... Arnie. Exactly. Well, <laughs> okay. I love you. I love you. If you're exactly. just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are Arnie Arneson of WNHN's The Attitude with Arnie Arneson. You just heard her. Philip Isle, freelance journalist in Providence, Rhode Island, and Paul Pronovo, editor of the Cape Cod Times. And we're talking about the regional news from the Cape, New Hampshire, and Rhode Island that you may have missed. So, Arnie, back to you. Maybe some of the young people in New Hampshire would understand what's going on with the budget and (laughs) elsewhere if they understood civics, if they had a good, strong civics education, which, with great alarm, several uh, institutions in New Hampshire had noted they did not have. And, uh, Last year, your legislature passed a law requiring students to pass a civics test for high school graduation. And this year, they're adding one more thing, civics instruction requirement. This uh, stands out. I think other people have talked about it, lamented it. But New Hampshire appears to be a leader in this arena anyway in getting kids educated again about how the system works. Well, you know, this is where it sort of is shocking to me. So every year, you know, I think in like fourth grade, you get to go down to visit the state house. It's kind of like a, a rite of passage. And what is so frightening is that the folks that are working there at the New Hampshire Historical Society said that these kids are coming in with absolutely no knowledge of history. They don't understand the American Revolution. They didn't know who we were fighting. I mean, this is just historical information, let alone civics about, you know, voting 
banking and the process and the checks and balances. So I think you see this from someone who's actually been offering these kids educational opportunities for over 20 or 30 years and seeing a change, a devolution in their knowledge base, number one. And number two, I'm going to recommend that every state get to clone this guy. Mm. His name is Judge Souter. And remember, Mm -hmm. this is the home of the former Supreme Court justice. Obviously, he left the bench, I think, way too early. But one of the things that really frightened him was the lack of civics knowledge. And so he came to New Hampshire, and he's been working around the country trying to get people on the page, whether it's in high school or college or elementary school, to realize that you can't have a democracy if you don't appreciate and understand the process and you don't understand the historical roots of that process. So because we have David Souter, because were a state that also takes the first in the nation presidential primary very, very seriously. I Mm. think it was almost a win-win strategy. And then you get a group of folks together that said, this is, of course, cheap New Hampshire. We don't invest. We have to raise the funds with bake sales. But they raised, I think they're about to raise about $1.2 million. And of course, it's the Bar Association, and it's the Humanities, and it's the Institute for Civics Education, the Charitable Foundation. So we're, you know, we're having our bake sale for civics education education, but they're going to raise the money and provide the curriculum, which I think is so important. But this can't be a New Hampshire story. This has to be a national story. I mean, we're frightened by what's happening with the media. We're all in the media. We get that. We're frightened with what people don't understand about the process, including our own president. So I'm not going to blame the top. I'm going to start blaming us for not educating our kids, because if they have this knowledge, they actually have a weapon. And that weapon is understanding the process and exercising the franchise with knowledge. And I think it's really important that New Hampshire is doing it. I just want to see 49 states follow our lead. Well, I agree with you. I want to give credit to the New Hampshire Historical Society, which has been the driver for this. And that $1.2 million, the combined project with all of the institutions that you mentioned, is called the Democracy Project, Renewing History and Civics in New Hampshire Schools. And they know that it's going to take them at least four years to develop all of this. But what I think is interesting, Paul, is that they're looking back at civics education and the curriculum that was there 25 years ago and sort of went by the by, uh, hasn't been updated. And now what the historical uh, organization and the Democracy Project are going to do are have a new version ready for uh, next year. Uh, yeah. And really, I'm, I'm so glad to hear this as a uh, someone who went to a, a humanities-based college. Uh, I can tell you that while the skills are not directly transferable, the ability to think, the ability to understand your world on a larger level is critically important as part of our educational foundation. And yet, those are exactly the programs that are getting squeezed out by standardized testing, by a focus on STEM education. And these things, of course, deserve great merit. Of course, we should have STEM education. Of course, we should have testing to understand where our students are falling on on the spectrum. But at the same time, arts are important. Humanities are important. Civics are important. And those are the programs that have traditionally lost out. It's nice to see that the pendulum is swinging back. A lot of STEM programs now are STEAM programs because they're including an A in there for arts. And certainly what's happening here in New Hampshire with a push for civics education is critically important. When I was reading about this this story that Arnie had shared with us and realizing that people didn't know some of the fundamentals of the Declaration of Independence and reading it in this, this time just, of course, around Independence Day, you think to yourself, how is that possible? And how is that possible, especially here in New England? where it's it's the cradle of democracy. And yet, of course, exactly. it is possible. And it's possible because 
again, it comes back to priorities. And if these things are not prioritized over five years, 10 years, 25 years, they're lost. And so it's good to see that people are recognizing that and trying to reverse that course. Well, I just wanted to highlight the depth of the lack of knowledge that the head of the New Hampshire Historical Society said the students who were coming through the State House did not know that we, meaning America, had fought the British. And I want to follow that up with just this past weekend when NPR did its Thank traditional tweeting <laughs> of the Declaration exactly right. of Independence, oh. the exact words of the Declaration yes. of Independence. This is a Absolutely. national program. It went everywhere. The the kind of response they got from your quote-unquote regular Americans who did not recognize the words of the Declaration of Independence and who were furious that they thought that NPR was putting forth some agenda. And this was the Declaration of Independence. So, Philip, we're in bad shape here. Amen. Amen. (laughs) Look, we could spend a whole show on this, and I'm going to try to be really brief. I'll, I'll add a couple things. One, a lot of people like to boast, and rightly so, that we're the world's oldest democracy. Well, this is the downside of that because you get complacency and you get ignorance and you see these countries around the world that are new to democracy and you see the kind of voter turnout they have in their first elections and you compare it to ours and it's just night and day. So I think that's one thing. Another thing is for July 4th, the NewsHour and Marist did a poll asking really, I think, just two questions that came out with some alarming results. Uh, These are adult Americans And they reported, while 77% of residents nationally correctly cite Great Britain as the country from which the U.S. declared its independence, nearly one in four, 23%, either mention another country, 8%, or are unsure. These findings have changed little from when this question was last reported in 2011. Also, three in 10 Americans, 30%, do not know the year in which the U.S. declared its independence. So there's that. It's not just kids. And the other thing I would add is looking back on the presidential election of last year, there was a lot of talk of norms being broken. Maybe people didn't know about these norms in the first place. Would the now president be able to have gotten away with his comments about not accepting the results of the election if people knew why these things were such a violation of all these things we stand for? This is a really eye-opening issue, and it's something I want to spend some time looking more into and maybe hitting the road to tell people about <laughs> civics. Well, I, I would only close with this on this subject, and that is I saw something on the many, many talk shows uh, recently where there was actually a screaming match between two you know, pretty well-known political analysts about how a bill gets made. And one <laughs> of them was screaming, do you know how a bill gets made? <laughs> and I thought, this is bad. This is really bad because, you know, the other person said, that's not how it happens. And she said, are you kidding me? And so we got to get the base of information that we all know, and then we can disagree about what the policies are. But if we don't understand how it all happens, wow, that was pretty scary to Bring watch. Bring back it, Schoolhouse it, Rock. Yeah. Kelly, I just yes. have to say one more thing, and that is on the Democracy Project. Let me just say there's a push-pull here. I'm really glad that all these volunteers have gotten together. They're going to raise money. They're going to create a curriculum. But here's what the state did to make sure that this actually happens, and that is they now included a civics test. They now include a requirement that you take civics, at least one course during the course of your lifetime. You need that into the idea of what is a public education, as well as people writing a curriculum. Because a curriculum with no test, unfortunately, and with no idea that you're supposed to actually take a course on civics, it ain't going to happen. So I want people to look at the whole. It's wonderful to do part of the story, but unless you do the whole story, all you do is get the headline and you don't get the change. Right. 
If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm here with our regional roundtable. Arnie Arneson, you just heard her. Philip Isle and Paul Pronovo were talking about New England stories you may have missed this week. Paul, I got to go back to you because I'm just utterly confused. It has nothing to do with your very well-written stories. No. Where in the world is the Mashpee tribe yes. uh, <laughs> gambling Amen. thing? I like, is it happening? Is it not happening? Are we going to court? Are we not going to court? I'm completely confused. Yeah, allow me to translate. Uh, so, of course, We've known now for a while that uh, the Mashpee Wampanoag are seeking to build a casino here in southeastern Massachusetts, and specifically in the city of Taunton. They have land that they were moving to put into trust, which is the first step toward being able to do what they want with it, and in this case, uh, build the uh, first light resort and casino. Neighbors of the community, both in Taunton and around Taunton, filed suit trying to block them, frankly, because they didn't want a casino in their backyard. And, you know, I can see why some people would not. And so uh, one of their contentions in court was that the tribe did not have rights to establish this land into trust. So really, at the base of it, it's a land dispute and it's a rights dispute. So the tribe has tried a couple different avenues to try to, to beat this back. And first of all, of course, they're fighting these neighbors in court. But secondly, they also appealed to the Department of Interior to once and for all recognize their standing as a tribe. Now, this is something, of course, we've talked about here on the air now for a number of years as the tribe has tried to get formal recognition. They were on the cusp of it, uh, I think maybe two or three years back, and there was a ruling uh, related actually to a Rhode Island tribe. It is known as the Carcieri ruling that said if you were not a recognized tribe before 1934, then you were out of luck, that you wouldn't be recognized again. Now, the Mashpee Wampanoag say we've been a tribe since before when the first uh, white people came to this country. We, we welcomed them at the first Thanksgiving. Uh, so they're outraged by the fact that they may not be recognized. Come back to the courts and to the Department of Interior. So they've been asking for basically a very technical ruling from the Interior Department. They were supposed to get that answer, and if it was answered in their favor, they would no longer have to fight in court, essentially. Well, it looked like, though it was never publicly announced, that the Interior Department was going to rule against them. So they made an effort to withdraw that effort at the last second. Instead, the Interior Department said, nope, we're going to continue to march forward. That looked like bad news on one day. Fast forward two days later, and it seems that a letter surfaced from the Interior Department saying that they were going to look at a very small and obscure standard, basically that it would be the state government, not the federal government, that could be recognizing you, and then that would count. Looks like that's probably going to fall in their favor, so they're standing and waiting, as they have been for a long yeah. time waiting. So it was really a roller coaster legal week for them. At one moment, it looked like things were going very badly, and the next moment, some information surfaced that looks like it could be going well for them. But we're still in a wait-and-see mode, as we have been now for many, many years. And, uh, and really, it really continues to raise the question of what next? If the tribe isn't recognized, if they can't build that casino, what next? What next for the tribe? What next for the state's casino plans? And uh, we're still in limbo on those questions. Well, I'm going to leave it there because we're still in limbo in this discussion. I just liked for it to update it, and I thought, this is too tangled for me. You're the best guy to do it, so thank you very much. So let me move on back to New Hampshire, Arnie. And New Hampshire is right in the middle of this uh, voter election, uh, yes. the presidential election. In, uh, the commission. epicenter. Yes, they're at the <laughs> epicenter. So briefly, the Presidential's Commission on Election Integrity has asked each state to provide information to it 
which includes names and addresses, birth dates, last four digits of the Social Security numbers, and on and on. Many states, more than 44, 44 have mm-hmm. uh, either flatly rejected, said no, or partially rejected the request. And in New Hampshire, and this is an evolving thing, in New Hampshire, several law, a couple of lawmakers have now filed a lawsuit with the ACLU saying we're going to block New Hampshire's ability to send any of this information to President Trump's Commission on Election Fraud. And you we have been at the there. epicenter of this story mm-hmm. for a long time, Callie, in part because Chris Sununu went on a radio talk show in Massachusetts just before the election and basically was talking about the busloads of voters that were going to come from your state, Massachusetts, yes. and drive into New Hampshire and vote illegally. And obviously that explains why Hillary Clinton won New Hampshire was because of all those illegal Massachusetts voters deciding that they were going to spend a day on Election Day and vote in our election. He, of course, had to then end up backing away from that because Chris Sununu won the election. So those voters didn't do a very effective job. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they only voted, apparently, for Hillary and then left. Anyway, there are about 44 states that have either rejected in its entirety or at least partial information to the Pence-Kobach Commission. It turns out that Chris Sununu, no surprise, he's a big supporter of Donald Trump. And since he's the one that planted that false story, he has to sort of continue along that false line. So he has said, absolutely, we should provide this information. Our Secretary of State, Bill Gardner, by the way, he's the longest-serving Secretary of State in U.S. history. He has been Secretary of State since Chris Sununu was two years old. He also has agreed to do this. People are beginning to wonder why. He's always said there's never been a problem, but he's serving on the Pence-Kobach Commission, so perhaps that's one of the reasons he's easily more influenced now. He's never been a stand-up person when it comes to sort of these kinds of issues, so I'm a little bit nervous here. But what it turned out is New Hampshire is a very libertarian state. We don't trust sharing information with anyone, and it turns out that Neil Kirk, who is known in the New Hampshire House as Mr. Privacy, and uh, Senator Betty Lasky and the ACLU have filed suit against the Pence-Kobach Commission saying that this is against our laws to share this information. And just as a sidebar information, just to let you know, it may have turned out that the Pence-Kobach Commission may have violated federal laws in making this request because they didn't actually cross their T's and dot their I's when they were scooping up all this information. So a lot of people are very, very concerned about this because is this really about voter integrity or is this an attempt to sort of compile information for eventual voter suppression. And I just want folks to know that one of the big stories you hear all the time, everyone, is, look at these people. For example, even in the Trump family, they were registered to vote in two places. Obviously, this is about abuse. This is about manipulation. I'm going to ask the panel here. I don't know if you've moved, but I've moved over the course of my lifetime. I moved from Minnesota to Vermont to New York to New Hampshire. Did you ever notify the former place in which you live that your name should be taken off the voter registration forms? I never called Minnesota. I never called Vermont. So I just want people to know that sounds questionable and suspicious, but I bet you 98% of us have never, ever called another state once we left, and I don't think there's a problem with that. Well, in addition to the voter suppression, there's also voter intimidation, which has already worked. There are people in some states where the states have said, maybe we'll send some who've said, I will not vote if you're going to send my personal information. We should note now, recently we found out that that information will go to some big data file at the White House, and Vice President Pence is overseeing that. Also noteworthy, Chris Kobeck, who is deputy director of the commission and also secretary of state for Kansas, has refused to turn over information to the own commission that is requested by his commission. So there we are with this. And this is going to be a topic of conversation across the way. I would note that in most New England 
states, the secretaries of state or election officials have said flat out no or partially no. And I would also note, which is very important in this situation, which is fraught with a lot of partisanship, that the rejection of this request is very bipartisan. You may hear some stronger voices from Democrats, but there are also some very strong uh, voices from Republicans, including I'm thinking about the Louisiana Secretary of State, who said, no, we will not be sending any of our information. That so, actually uh, makes this almost a feel-good story. Exactly. So we'll see what happens here. We'll see. Has there ever been a time in the history of our country where the state and federal governments have been more at odds? I mean, when you think about it, take this issue, of course, looking for uh, voter information, and so many states are fighting it. The vast majority of states are fighting it. And then add, last week, 18 attorneys general sued the Secretary of Education about changes to the laws that offered Mm. student protections against for-profit schools. Of course, we know well about the travel ban. On and on and on, you can think of examples of states rising up and fighting against the federal government. I don't think I've ever seen this happen. Well, what's happening, and this is how I'm going to put a button on this piece of the discussion, is that there is now a shifting line about what are state rights and what are federal Mm -hmm. rights. And because of the lack of civic education that many of us have, we're getting a lesson now as we really look closely at these laws, because it is true that there are some federal laws that will prevent even part of the request they're asking for. But there's also some states' rights stuff that's involved as well. And we've seen both parties move back and forth across the line as you said, under this presidency. So there's going to be a lot more to come as we get a little bit more clear about what do we mean by states' rights, what do we mean by federal laws. You know, it's it'll be interesting. So mm-hmm. let me move on, Paul, because I want you to wrap up with some real good news. Record-breaking on the Cape. Is this a precursor to the rest of the summer, you think? Your people said they've never seen business like this this past uh, holiday weekend. Boy, uh, I know the Chamber of Commerce and others hope this is a bellwether. I spoke with Tobin Wirt, who uh, is the owner of Cafe Chew in Sandwich, and uh, he said that in his eight years in business, the Saturday leading up to the 4th of July, was the best they've ever had. Just all the evidence points to uh, really record-breaking. Not everyone says it was record-breaking, but many do in terms of business, in terms of the numbers of people who came. You know, it was the perfect storm in a good way. The holiday falling on a Tuesday allowed for this very long stretch of a weekend. The weather, of course, was gorgeous. And I don't know if this is a factor or not, but closing New Jersey beaches, I saw a lot of New Jersey license plates. (laughs) Well, I'm happy to leave it on that good note then. Thank you all for joining me. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you, Kelly. Arnie Arneson is host of WNHN's The Attitude with Arnie Arneson. Philip Isle is a freelance journalist based in Providence, Rhode Island. And Paul Pronovo is the editor of the Cape Cod Times. Coming up, trash transformations. That's what Nary Ward does with his massive works of art. We learn more about the inspiration and meaning behind the pieces featured in his latest exhibit called Sunsplashed on display now at the Institute of Contemporary Art here in Boston. That's up next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley.